This is the On the Touchline podcast. We're your hosts, Jason Broadwater and Aaron Rogers. Welcome to the show. Well, welcome back to the On the Touchline podcast and uh, hope everybody's staying safe and uh, managing your your quarantine um, and hopefully the the OTTL podcast has uh, kept you company uh, right Aaron that uh, I know you've gone back and listened to every episode of this podcast right time two times a day <laughs> no wonder why our, our uh, podcast numbers <laughs> so much in today's episode we have uh, Twyla Kaufman and uh, Twyla is a coach with the Houston Dash in the NWSL and uh, Aaron, um, you had uh, made the recommendation to me that we should have Twyla on the show, and I uh, thought that would be fantastic. Yeah, I mean, Twyla has such a good, great reputation as a as a coach, and obviously working at the professional level now, and coached um, in various levels collegiately, and and I think um, has a lot to offer um, as a very dedicated coach. Um, and really cares about the individuals. Um, I think uh, it'll be awesome to hear how she how she has developed and and what she what her experiences have taught her about how best lead now professional players. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the uh, you know when you look at her uh, resume or CV, um, the places she's been, the the players she's had a chance to work with, um, you know it, it's quite impressive. Um, and uh, like you said, the, the reputation uh, also goes a long way that, uh, you know, I, I think we, we work in a business where reputation really matters and what people think of you and, um, you know, the, the quality of the human being is, uh, is really important, you know, in the, in the soccer coaching profession. Uh, guys, you can support us as a podcast uh, by doing this a couple different ways. Um, we always appreciate when you leave a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts. And um, whatever uh, platform you prefer, please be sure to subscribe to the show. That way you will get new episodes each and every week. Um, And you never miss a new episode when it comes out. Um, And uh, like I said, go to Apple Podcasts and and make sure you leave the five-star and uh, brief review about the show. That helps more and more people in the footballing and soccer world find the show and, uh, you know, as Aaron sits at his computer and goes back and listens to every episode uh, <laughs> twice a day, every day uh, in quarantine. Uh, yeah. Uh, so we want more and more people to find the show. Um, Aaron, how can people connect with you on social media if they are listening to this podcast? Twitter and Instagram at Ohio Soccer Coach. And you can find me at Soccer Coach JB uh, on the same platforms. We are both highly active on those. Uh, guys, hope you enjoy this conversation with Twyla Kaufman. Twyla, you've done a, a little bit of everything in your career um, from being a player and uh, you know, at the collegiate level and professional level and um, coaching and back at the professional level coaching. Uh, tell folks a, l- a little bit about your backstory and, and where you grew up and how you got into this uh, great game that we all love. Well, just out of respect to our current professional players, I, I played in the W League, 
which was a little different than the pro league at the time. And then the year that I graduated from college, the pro league actually folded. Mm. So I don't, I don't want to call myself a pro because I never really got that opportunity, but definitely played with players that had been playing professionally and uh, that went on to play professional again. Um, but yeah, as far as, did you ask, sorry, will you repeat the question again? Sure. Um, yeah. Tell the, uh, the audience uh, about your backstory and uh, you know, where you grew up and um, kind of first memories of uh, uh, you know, the, the best game in the world. I actually was just asked this question the other day. It was phrased a little different. Um, tell us about when you fell in love with the game. And it was kind of three different moments. And my very first one was goes all the way back to AYSO. I'm one of those, yeah, I guess, interesting people that can actually remember way back when I was super young. I was probably younger than eight. It must have been significantly younger than eight. And I remember scoring my first goal. And it was this moment where the goalkeeper kind of prevented the goal, but it was like bobbling between her legs. And I was stood away waiting for her to like kick it back out. And she just wasn't. And I got so frustrated. It was like the first time I felt that, like felt the heat as a player. And I remember having the thought, why don't I just go kick that ball in the goal? And I did. And I just, I think it was my first, you know, kind of competitive thing I ever had. So I played AYSO like everybody else. And or some sort of recreational league, moved on to club, and I was really, really lucky playing. Um, I grew up in the city of L.A. where there weren't a lot of teams, so at 12, I played on a U19 team, not because I was that good, but because it was the only team in the area. And then those players all eventually graduated, and they helped me get connected with a team in my age group called Los Virginis Blazers, which was 45 minutes to an hour north of us, and that's now SoCal United. And then my original coach, who was awesome, asked me to uh, go to the Blues with him. And it started just as a carpool opportunity. He needed somebody to beat carpool because the Blues are in Orange County. And so I ended up playing for him on a team that did really, really well. But it was really those car rides with him that kind of sparked my interest in coaching. I got to hear everything that was going on, you know, in preparation for practices and then the response on the way home and even calls from, it was just the beginning of cell phone use back then, but even calls from parents and I dealt with all of that. And I pretty much knew from a young age that I was going to pay it forward. I also struggled a little bit, our family, to pay our dues. And so that was a time in, in Southern California where a lot of the current club directors, really established clubs, were just establishing their clubs. And I was that kid that got to work all their camps and their startup events to pay my dues. And so I started coaching really young. I think I had my first full group at a camp at age 12 mm. and kind of paid a lot of bills that way uh, growing up. I chose the University of Arizona because my college coach, who was also one of our ODP coaches, was in charge of coaching education for the Western region. And then between my club coach and, and those coaches, especially an assistant at the University of Arizona, I was always encouraged to be coaching on the side. So I did like the coach and training program with the state of Arizona while I was a college athlete, also while I was playing in the W League. And I coached club all the time. I even coached a high school team. Um, and then I had kind of lined up an opportunity in case the league didn't work out for me. And that was with Andre Luciano at NAU. 
he was had moved from being assistant at Arizona to the head coach there and spent a little bit of time with him. And then I got a call from Pepperdine out of the blue to come work camp. And unbeknownst to me, it was an interview. <laughs> so at the end of camp, I got hired at 24 to Pepperdine. And I spent 10 years there, which was really formative for me in every area of my life, personally, professionally, spiritually, you name it. Um, I grew up there. And then I moved on to Davis, where I was the head coach for five years. And both during both of that, those stints at Pepperdine and Davis, I continued with the Olympic Development Program and smaller roles, which led to bigger roles with our federation. And then in May, I just up and quit a college career of 16 years and wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. Did a little bit of stuff with the federation on the side, did what some would call the love, you know, pray, eat tour or whatever across Europe. And through my amazement, I got connected to my current boss during that time and headed over quickly after the World Cup final to become an assistant at the Dash, which is where I've been ever since. That's a... Uh a pretty incredible um, backstory and, um, you know, twists and turns and, uh, you know, uh, ups and downs and, and things like that. Uh, I, I love what you said about that first goal. Uh, I heard the story you told about that, that first goal at, you know, U8 or whatever age it was. And, um, you know, in, in, in knocking it in and the joy that came along with, uh, you know, that moment, um, Aaron and I were, were both, both goalkeepers. So we, we probably would have, uh, you know, picked the ball out of the goal and, and probably punted it down the field or something. Uh, but I, we always talk about sort of the, the psychological side of our game and, you know, that those moments, especially for young players, um, are really formidable about finding that joy. Right. And, and especially now, given the, you know, the, the time we're in with the coronavirus and, um, you know, everyone virtually worldwide sort of, you know, having to, to be remote. It's been really great to see players with a ball at their feet, probably more than they ever have. I wonder sort of, you know, skeptically to say how much is this going to continue when, you know, once there is some normalcy back in our society. Um, but that joy for you, I guess, is my question. What was that like? And how did it inspire you to, to keep going uh, and to build your confidence and to, um, you know, promote all the, the good values that we want, uh, you know, sort of within our game? That's a really interesting question. I've enjoyed the game at every level that I've been at, even kind of the really hard times, both as a player and as a coach. But I think it's, it is really important to note that people go through ebbs and flow in their feelings about the game. There's, I think there's a relationship with the game, kind of how you have with a person and you got to work at it and kind of know when to take a step back and in order to make it work for a long time. Um, I really love what you said about, you know, players being on the ball more on their own maybe than they have been in the past. And even the creativity I see people coming up with, I, I hope people don't, especially younger athletes, don't go back to having a situation where they're relying on a coach to map out every aspect of their day. I think that's probably one of the most frustrating things for me as a coach is that, and I've told players this at every level that, that I understood this concept <laughs> that I was at, which hasn't always been the case, but 
you know, if a coach is completely responsible for your play and for that matter of your joy, which, which I think joy is our own responsibility, then they'd have to cover everybody's needs in a practice. And that's, I just think that's impossible. And so they're always going to have to be doing something on your own to meet your deficiencies or to help to do the things that bring you joy and build your confidence. And I think this actually is a good reset time. And I think the best coaches will be looking for opportunities to teach their players how to continue to be self-led and how to continue to be creative as opposed to kind of getting right back to everything is coach led. And I'm also really hopeful for parents that as they watch their children come up with their own games that maybe we don't have to have this over scheduling in every aspect of life that seems to be going on. Um, there's something really good in the rest and this downtime right now. And for me, you know, I was the happiest I'd been in a really long time when I took kind of a sabbatical over the summer and was just on my own time, own time schedule. I was uh, talking with a coach who remained nameless a little while ago and, and, she was saying, you know, Twilight, I think, you know, I've had a little practice for what it feels like, not the hard things. I don't want to make light of the coronavirus. Like we know that there's people that are really suffering right now. Um, for me personally, I don't have that going on. And so this looks a lot like prayer for those people. And then a lot of time for me to be by myself and learning how to just be at rest sometimes and think about what does really bring you joy is really important. And maybe to try something you've never tried before. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, it's funny. I, I think all of us are, um, or I shouldn't say all of us, uh, we're I hear from coaches on a regular basis of just, you know, cabin fever and stir crazy and, and things like that. And, but it's exactly what you said, uh, Twyla, that it's also, I think, allowed to kind of branch out. Um, it's also been great in some respects to hit the pause button. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, this is, truly a first world problem here, right? When I say this, but, um, you know, doing deep dives on YouTube and going back and watching games that I had, you know, told myself, yeah, one day I'm going to watch it, you know, well, okay, that day's arrived. Um, it's, been, it's been fun in some respects. Um, obviously, you know, that is also being completely uh, self-aware to know that, you know, there are a lot of people in the world, uh, you know, suffering at the moment. So Aaron, bring you into this conversation. So I know I did play goalkeeper um, as, as a higher level youth player and as a college and semi-professional level. I, so I will defer to Twyla's comment about where she played with the W League and then because the, I played in the USL when it was right at the precursor to the MLS. And so we weren't really, it was professional air quotes, but we weren't you know, we were part-time guys, you know, but my, I, I can, I know what you're saying about that first feeling of love because that's, I have this memory, seven years old, kicking the ball and it going in the net. And I will, and I, here I am 47 years old and I still remember that 40 years ago. And, and I think that, that joy, whatever it is, that, that, that um, lightning bolt just struck my soul at that point. And I knew at that point, this was, this was for me. And it was, and I still, I, who knows if my memory is even real, if it's just me, what I'm thinking in my head about kicking the ball, probably with my toe with white. I don't even think I had cleats at the time. And you're talking back in the late seventies and, and eight, around 80. And, and so I remember that, but you know, I love, I love what you say that you talk about, we own our own joy. 
And it's so, you know, one of the things that I've evolved with our, as a coach mentor to our players is we own our own development. We own our own development. We own our own joy and you can't make somebody do something that they don't want to do. And so we can give them activities to do. We can try to inspire them and motivate them, but they have to find their own joy. And that's something that I've really tried to instill in our players. So when you think about as a coach, when you think about that, finding that joy, you've been able to coach youth, ODP, national team level players and college players and professionals. How do you see the differences? Where do you see the differences? Do you see differences in those in each level and how it may elevate or how it may become more professional? But how do these players find that joy and excitement? I think this is even kind of goes beyond soccer and it's like a basic human kind of question for everybody to answer for themselves. Like, how do you find joy across any circumstance that you're in? Um, Cause that's what real joy is. It comes from something deeper. It's, it's not just a circumstance that you, that creates joy. It's your reaction to whatever's going on. It's an internal thing. So I think, you know, at the youth, I think a lot of people are confused and it's probably something we have to work on our whole life. I mean, I have to check myself anytime I'm having a moment and kind of go, wait a minute, you know, like you're responsible for your own joy right now. Nobody can take that from you. It's an internal thing. So I think at the youth level, a big one is really trying to also educate the parents about this truly being player driven. And what does that look like? What to do, what not to do? There's like the positive parenting campaign kind of going on. I find a lot of good things in there. Um, and really giving players an opportunity to kind of discover things for themselves. So I used to try not to overschedule and I tried not to do private lessons with the, especially with the teams that I coached because I feel like they had enough at training and they could go off and do their own. Um, I would say at the college level that I think that's probably the hardest one, um, that I've seen players go through. I think that almost everybody that goes off to play college soccer has enjoyed or thought that they enjoyed their club experience and they thought they knew why they enjoyed their club experience. And then you get to college and it's a brand new beginning. And I think whenever there's an expectation, whether it's a good expectation, a bad expectation, a inaccurate expectation, or just a completely unrealistic expectation, or just an expectation that's different from the people around you, and that expectation is not met, that is a big kind of confrontational moment for almost every athlete that experiences that. And if they can name it and call it what it is, like an unmet expectation, and like immediately get after okay, how do I get on the same page with this person? Or how do I make adjustments to understand what's going on right now and make the most of it? It, it can kind of go down a dark spiral real quick. So I think not letting expectations get in the way of your joy, like what's actually happening right in front of you, the good things that are happening right in front of you is a really big key for college players. Uh, most of them do figure it out by the time they're, some find really early, which is awesome to see. And almost everybody figures it out by the time they're a senior. And then there's like that feeling of regret. Um, 
that maybe they shouldn't have worried so much about what us coaches thought ahead of time, or maybe coaches are human, which I know I've made a ton of mistakes. All my athletes can attest to that. Um, and they, that we need to be let off the hook for being responsible for their joy, that it's not intentional, any pain that we've caused. Um, and we're working through that. National team is really interesting because it's such a high pressure environment. Um, and it's just in such condensed short periods of time. And so I think there it's really remembering, helping athletes have tools to kind of bounce back after mistakes and stay focused on the part that is light and joyful and their own personalities and things like that. This is a really interesting question at the professional level because a lot of people ask the question and then kind of throw it out there as though you can't coach the same way in college as you would in the pro league. But when you're trying to do the rest, the best by every individual, I think trying to figure out what brings every player their personal joy when they feel the most comfortable, when they're the most in their skin is really, really important and giving permission within a strong boundary that everybody has to play within it is really important. Um, we're doing individual development plans right now, and one of the aspects is mental. So I've been going through a particular group of players, and it's really interesting. Some of them have kind of tools that they use to get themselves back on track. I was really surprised by how many of them set aside time every day to do something completely outside of soccer. And I think that that is that balance is a really important piece to the joy. It, and it seems to me that the veterans uh, are the best at it. Hmm. Uh, sorry, Jason, I was on mute there. Sorry. <laughs> I could follow up there. Um, so it is, it, you know, they all have to find their own, own joy. They all have to control the controllables because they can't. And when we start, and I think you mentioned that about the college student athlete is they're so focused on the uncontrollables that they let that affect their experience and you're right by the time they a lot of them figure it out they're seniors and they're like I got it and then it's all over because the college season is so short and here they are mm -hmm. in August and they think they have it or they they've gotten close to it and then um it's over in November um but but I think as we delve even deeper it's all about relationships from even you know the professional level all the way down you and you mentioned it i mean at the professional level you have to know the what drives each person because i try to talk as holistically with our players and as the group to get them to understand that if we have 28 people or 18 players in a professional team 20 there are 18 or 28 different reasons why they're there. Okay. And we all come from a different place. And so the better we know each other, the better we can, can care about each other, then they care about their, their motivation or their place that they're coming from, the better we're going to be. And so I think that's true to understand where each person is coming from. I really like that. You even say at the professional level, they all have different motivations and they all have different drive that push them. And obviously they're there for a reason. So, so this might uh, piggyback off of uh, what Aaron just said, Twyla, that, um, you know, given the environments that you've been able to work in, 
uh, and the different coaches that you've worked with, right, and in, in, in leading your own program uh, at one time, um, what makes a good coach? If you had to sort of, uh, you know, give a, uh, an elevator pitch to someone, um, you know, that basically just, uh, you know, dropped into the planet Earth, you happen to be in an elevator with them, and, you know, they say to you, oh, hey, you're a soccer coach. Uh, what makes a good coach? I think there's some things that most of us would agree on. Like you have to be knowledgeable, content knowledgeable. And the players have to know that. So you have to be able to express yourself well enough so that they understand what you're trying to, trying to share with them about the game itself. I think flexibility is really important. Um, and that has to do with the way that you present things. If you're not keeping up with technology, if you're not innovative in that regard, that's going to be a big issue over time. You um, have to be flexible with the timing of the way you do things, see other people's gifts and what they're good at. So you can't have multiple people on the same staff all doing one thing, right? And then so many things that are important to a program being left by the wayside because you haven't kind of figured out roles. Um, and I think it takes a lot of discernment for the head coach in those scenarios to figure that out and get it right. Um, I think that it takes a lot of self-reflection. I always, I always say, people ask, what's the difference between being a head coach and an assistant coach? And truthfully, I love being a head coach and I love being an assistant coach. They're just different. I think being a head coach for me is really, really lonely. And I think you have to be able to work through things with a really trusted group, like a cabinet of supporters that you can kind of reach out to when you're the head coach that will keep it confidential. But you also have to be able to work through and manage your emotions by, by yourself on a lot of things in order to keep things headed in the right direction. So processing by yourself well um, and with a, a particular group. And I always also say it's like being naked in front of all these people. I mean, when you're doing something almost 24-7 in front of a group that's that's looking at you for guidance, or if things haven't gone quite right, is maybe looking for you to make a mistake, well, they're gonna find them, because we're all human and we make mistakes all the time. So going along with self-reflection, I think just kind of the ability to be vulnerable and admit when you're wrong, and try and regroup, um, not on an island, but with other people, being honest about that. And then, it's really hard to win if you haven't recruited at the college level or somehow acquired at a different level, um, the players that can really help you. So having an eye for that and being able to like network so that you have other people doing that for you, I think is really important as well. I love what you said about, uh, <clears throat> about being vulnerable. Um, I think that's a, a great life skill, um, you know, in, in today's world. And there's a, a level of authenticity that comes with that, right? That, um, because I, I think the days of a, a coach doesn't really matter the sport of the all-knowing, the omnipotent, um, never can do wrong, right? Um, do as I say, not as I do sort of thing. Um, I would like to think as a coaching community, and again, not necessarily football or, or soccer specific here, that we're moving toward more of a, um, you know, an authentic or even a, a vulnerable version of coaches and that we're willing to admit and own, um, you know, and, and I do that with my guys all the time. You know, I'll be the first that what I had in my mind or what I had on my training sheet or, or whatever 
and it, it looked fantastic. And then we got out there and it didn't look fantastic. So, you know, and it t- touches on another point that you mentioned about the flexibility, um, because I think if you're so rigid as a coach, this game isn't for you. <laughs> I mean, I'll just, I'll say it like that um, because the, the game of football or the game of soccer isn't rigid, right? It's free flowing. It's open. It's constant, you know, I mean, it just speaks to, to our game on a, in a bigger scale, I think. Um, but I, I love the, the vulnerability piece um, just because I, I think that's a, it is an incredibly difficult thing to master, as a coach and as a human being, quite frankly, right. To say, yeah. because uh, you know, the analogy of standing naked in front of a group of people. Yeah. It, it sucks. I mean, I'll, I'll, again, I'll, I'll say it, you know, uh, that way that um, because it's hard, you know, it's hard to show that we make mistakes. It's hard to admit that we, man, we screwed that one up. Um, it's hard to admit that if I brought a player off too soon or I should have kept, you know, he or she on just a little bit more, you know, or whatever. Um, but I think this is just my own personal theory. I think that in the long run, it actually pays dividends because you're basically putting equity into the bank with the players just to show them that, Hey, um, you know, I'm really no different than you. I just happen to be the person facilitating, you know, this group. So that's mine. No, I think, I think relationships are the key. And in order to have an authentic relationship, you have to be vulnerable. And, and as, and it is, it is funny because we are always as a coach balancing everything that we say or we do because we know is somebody trying to find the good in what I'm doing or are they trying to find a fault in what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And so that is the, I think, I think that is the true um, challenge of your, of being, sharing your vulnerability and being willing to share your vulnerability because it's, it's so key, but those relationships are key. And, and now as we, as we transcend into a different type of leaderships, um, as, as opposed to the buck stops here, leader, or my, my way, the highway leadership to, understanding the motivation of each person and you got to have that with trust and you have to have that with relationships and you have to have that with vulnerability. And, and, um, and I, I feel like the first time you show that vulnerability is the hardest and then it becomes a lot easier. (laughs) Yeah. It can come out super awkward when you first start really doing that, just like anything I think that you're working on, but in time it's, it's definitely worth it. And that balance of when to do it and when not to do it. I mean, I've, I've gotten it wrong a a lot. I think I was getting closer to where I want to be the last couple of years at Davis. And I'm definitely a lot closer now than I was then. And hopefully I'm better at it, you know, a year from now, but um, it, there are moments to just say, no, like I am the head coach when, if things don't work out, I have to take responsibility for that. And so they have to go my way. And I remember one of my bigger frustrations before the culture was where I wanted it to be um, in the last program I was at was I'm all for the questions and I'm all for debating some of this stuff, but I don't want to do it over this stuff. Like the fun stuff is like on this side 
it doesn't have to do with like how we show up to practice, you know, things like being on time, you know, kind of doing things the right way. Like those matter because we can't have different standards for, you know, 30 different people. But the stuff I want to be arguing about is, should we make this pass? Should we not make this pass? What did you see? What did I see? You know, is there a better way to be doing it? And it's, I think once the athletes understand that when you get to a certain, to certain topics, those are all up for conversation, you know, um, it's easier to not have to kind of put your foot down because they want to get to those points that are the negotiable parts. Mm -hmm. And when you really listen, there's so many times an athlete has asked me a question and I've had to think about it and go, I don't know. I don't know why I didn't do that, you know? And, and I need to add that to my list of kind of things that I think about before a halftime or when we're down a goal or we're up a goal or whatever it was specific to this particular team. How much, how much self-reflection, I mean, I know we saw it's, it's huge with vulnerability, but how much self-reflection do you do? Do you put into that after sessions or after, after matches or, or after just in the individual meetings that you may have with the, the players now? I think the hard part about answering that question is that there's so many times we just don't see what we don't see. And so I'm probably missing a lot of things still, but I'm, I'm working at being really deliberate at every practice and every game and going to the, to the NWSL level has really almost forced me into a greater level of detail about that. So even to the point of not just reflection, but I guess what I would call pre-flection, <laughs> you know, like um, one mistake I made when I first got here is, you know, the first couple sessions James had me run, I was super diligent and they were a little bit different than sessions I'd run in the past because they were catered to this team and pretty well and I was really excited. And then he asked me to run another session and I was like, right, I'm going to do this one. I've done this session a thousand times, like can't get it wrong, you know, all that. So it's in my back pocket and I showed up and it was the worst session I've ever run in my entire life and the lesson I really learned there obviously I did a lot of reflection after that because I had to but one of the things I learned is that I really better be thinking about every detail as to why my activities are set up this way what problems the games that I'm doing are going to create for them to solve what are the most likely ways they're going to solve it okay and this is kind of what threw me in that one practice is i was not prepared for this level of competitiveness backed by this level of experience so they found every hole in the rules that i had created <laughs> and they were following my rules it was my problem but soon the game didn't look like i wanted the actual brand of how we were playing mm -hmm. to play and so now when i plan an activity or i'm planning a joint activity with our head coach um, or even an individual session, I'm finding that I'm asking myself a lot more questions. And then afterwards, it's, okay, how did that go? And did anything new come up? What would you do differently? Um, and then if, if we have video, most of the time it's on a drone and you can't hear, but occasionally we get the audio. And that's always really interesting to hear. I, I have a couple catchphrases that I go to, which I need to eliminate. And even delivery, I think something that I'll probably always have to work on is in the moment, making sure my tone is one that each particular athlete can hear. 
and and I'm going to be working on that probably to the re for the rest of my life <laughs> and probably in every relationship that I have um not just in soccer and it's a it's a good thing to be conscious of so you're working with uh professional athletes and these are um players that are paid these this is what they do uh you know for a living um we were talking about relationships earlier and, you know, uh, I, I, I could see, uh, you know, the, the transferability um, in, a, in a college environment to that, to the pros, you know, we're around our players a lot. Um, we're interacting with our players a lot. Might not get as much uh, training time or match time as we want, but, you know, in the college environment, but we're around them. We're mentoring, we're talking about life, you know, whatever. What is that like in a professional environment? And I guess take people in, you know, if there is a, I say this in air quotes, sort of a, a typical day. I don't, I haven't met one of those yet. Um, what does that look like for you? And when do you start your day? Um, you know, I probably like many coaches that listen to this. Uh, I, I love routines. I love habits. Um, you know, when I'm out of my routine, um, I'm, trying to get back to my routine as quickly as possible. But what is that like for you? When you, when your feet hit the floor in the morning, kind of take me through from beginning to end, what does that look like? Well, I, I should preface that I got two days of training with the team this preseason before we were halted with this. And last year I came in in the middle of August when the team was so late in the season that so many things were already fine tuned. So the days were shorter, um, but in an ideal day, I wake up at five and spend some time in my Bible because that's important to me. It helps me set the rest of the day, have a good breakfast. Um, if there's time, work out a little bit and then head over to the, we have a separate practice facility around eight o'clock and the staff will meet at 815. So you've got to be changed and ready for that. And we kind of quickly review the training that was already designed the day before and any changes that might come up with, you know, player personnel differences and stuff like that. And just really make sure that we're all on the same page and we know what our specific role is in training. James is really good about making sure that everybody has a, a separate role so that so many things are getting covered in a condensed period of time, which is really important probably in every training, but more so for us because it's, it can be so hot here. And then training will end and there'll be like a little bit of a pause and depending on each player's individual development plan, I might have a few different athletes that might do a little bit of extra work somewhere between like five and 15 minutes and that would be really detailed. And then they would have gone into the gym and either done a cool down or gone on to weights and our staff will kind of meet and we'll either have a team meeting where we'll go over video or just have lunch together and then they leave and then our staff kind of reviews the film puts it up on huddle for anything that the players need to review and make sure that we're if we haven't planned the whole week of training based on kind of where we're at and our opponent um, plan the next session uh, if it's my week for the scout we have that divided three ways then there would be some time uh, with the head coach and then the rest of the staff before the team saw it um, just preparing the scout. And then I'm responsible for about eight or nine 
nine players individual development plans so they're you know I can't meet with them all every week but it's it's with them every two weeks and so chances are in the afternoon I'll have a session with them and then likely by two or three o'clock we're all leaving and then when you get home I think that's like where a lot of the reflection and things like that happen um, and projects that you're working on, on the side watching soccer from all around the world so you can compare like what we're doing to maybe a slightly higher standard if you can find it and presenting really good pictures and I'm spending a lot of time learning how to make my presentations better so that's one of my greatest joys there's a lot of things I really miss about college but a lot of my college time was spent doing administration and some soccer stuff. And now I'm doing a lot of my deep thinking about the actual game itself and my own thoughts about the game and trying to stay current with the game and then thinking about my, pre my presentation skills. So the focus is, is more enjoyable for me just based on my likes and dislikes. Um, and then I try and take care of my own physical health and do the normal people things. and maybe one more time before bed, look at the session for the morning and start it all over again. Aaron, bring you back in. So you talked about earlier about the, the culture piece and one of the things that I know, and I think, I think you're pretty proud of it and, I, and you definitely should have, should be, you know, you spent a lot of great years at Pepperdine and then, you got to branch out on your own at, at Davis. And what were some of the key elements? Because that last season you had at Davis was probably the most successful. Am I, am I right about that? Yeah, it was our most successful. And you could argue the most successful season the program had, just, but it's definitely up there, if not the top one. Yeah. So, so talk to me about some of the, the key elements to getting that right. I think – and this is no discredit to the players that are in the program when you get there, because some of the best humans and soccer players I've been able to work with were actually there for like a year or two years when I first got there. But I think there's something um, that the, the modern college coach may have to learn that I wasn't quite aware in my, my first couple of years. And I, I think I got it a little bit later down the line. I think the culture piece is a little bit easier when one coach has been in the same place for a long period of time and you have seniors that have gone through like the ups and downs. So when that downtime comes, they're like, no, no, little freshman, you're supposed to feel like this. It's going to pay, it's going to pass and you're going to come through this and it's going to be better. And it works. Like you just, sometimes you take two steps backward to go forward. And that sort of leadership through those things is happening from within the team. It's definitely a lot harder when nobody knows the coach and the coach doesn't know the players. And so, you know, I think that's why you see a lot of people um, by year four or five finding out how to have sex, uh, success, <laughs> whether they're in a, a team that actually has a slightly higher personal you know, level or lower personal level than when they started. I think it's more about the time and, and have, getting to see how things work over time. Um, and I think one of the skills I wish I would have learned or thought about reframing my thoughts earlier is um, how do you plan? Like when I first got to Davis, I went there with the intention of being there for 20 years, like wanted to be one of those coaches. I, Tim, my boss at Pepperdine has been there for over 20 years now. 
And so I always had like a long-term plan and I was willing to suffer a little bit to get there. Um, but you know, the athletes only have four years. And I think that's really important piece to consider that somehow you want a, a quick turnaround for them, not just with the winning, but with the culture piece in a way that's really palatable for them. Um, and then really fine tuning your communications. So I think the big thing going into my last year and we were on our way, like the incline at Davis was, I think we literally finished a place higher every year in conference. So it was coming, but I had a personal development coach, like a business coach come and work with me. And he was like, Twella, you need to write your mission statement out. And I was like, been there, done that. I had to do that for my master's program. Here it is. Everybody knows it. If you ask my players or staff, they would know what it is. It's pretty clear. And he's like, they don't know. And I'm like, what? So he's like, let me look at it. And he's like, okay, you need to get this down to like one sentence. Cause it was a page based on my master's paper. And just by coincidence, I ended up in training for a program called Growing Leaders. And if you guys don't know what that is, it's um, Tim Elmore, who he's done a lot of studying about how to communicate with this generation. And there's a lot of research on how pitchers make a difference. So I went and did that, it has nothing to do with soccer, just how to grow leaders and with imagery as the main focus and the science behind communicating like that. And it, I just kind of got a picture in my mind about how things need to co coordinate. So I was able to put like my mission values and purpose together in kind of what was like a picture. And I think it really helped our team. So originally, you know, the mission was wherever I've been, you know, to create and maintain a like cohesive team full of women of character. And it used to be, that play at that, that compete at the highest level. And I realized that wasn't it. Davis wasn't at the highest level yet. And it was important to acknowledge that. So it was then to come that women that enjoy are capable of and enjoy competing against anyone, you know, any place, anytime, no matter what the circumstances, which actually fits my personality like significantly better. And then the purpose would be so that they're ready when they graduate so that we win, you know, and then, and they're ready when they graduate to go out and really make a difference in the world and not just alone like that hopefully they've gone on this journey with other people and they have friends for life in their staff and in and with the players that, that can be accountable so inadvertently to me and I, this i think has really helped me and it'll probably be part of my coaching uh core values i guess for the rest of my life and they'll just evolve is that like my first core value is clear communication. So basically I have to communicate clearly and they have to communicate clearly to me what the expectations are. And so many times I realized when that was the first checkpoint that that wasn't actually happening and so many misunderstandings or frustrations could be cleared up by just me being more specific and detailed. So it forced me to be a better communicator. But the big thing is if I clearly communicate then when you watch the program, it's going to be very clear, clearly a very organized team. So I've, this is what we're trying to do. If they do it, we're going to look really organized. Um, the next piece is discipline. And if you have discipline, which is the core value, then when you look at the team, and this is how we would talk as a team and go through all of this with different lessons and pictures and things like that. If you have discipline, then everybody's going to see that it's a gritty team. 
which is important to me, you know? And we wanna be opportunity takers. Because if we are people that can recognize opportunities, whether it's a shot on the field or uh, a certain time in conference where you make a push or um, just an opportunity to reach out to a teammate, whatever it is, um, opportunity to do a Zoom when, when otherwise we wouldn't be able to communicate, then we're gonna be known as innovative. And you know, when you talk to players, I always say confident, I wanna be confident, but my core value landed on being prepared because if we're prepared in all areas, then they're gonna be confident. And accountability is a big one. That was another core value went over because we want to be dependable for each other. And unity is important because we wanna to be together. And then I, I think the all in kind of greater good. So if you're playing for a purpose that's bigger than yourself, you'll, you'll pretty much do anything, right? So what happened when we would go through this and I was forced, you know, this coach helped me to really force every time I wanted to express something or I wanted to change or I wanted to review something to actually use this language. What I realized is some, I don't know what percentage it would be, but so much it fell on clear communication. And then there were so many times I clearly communicated and the player had an opportunity to communicate back to me something that might change my mind and I have to be flexible with that. And then they just didn't want to do it. So if, if it wasn't, if there wasn't a reason for me to make a change, that was an awesome opportunity to say, does unity still matter? Because if unity still matters, then it's more important for us to be on the same page than for you to get this one thing that you want. So you have an awesome opportunity to practice doing something you don't want to do that you ought to do, which is where discipline comes in. And just constantly bringing it back to those things and, um, the way that we did it before that year is I asked them a series of questions and anything that they thought was important or anything they thought could get in the way of us winning and becoming a closer team. And I put all of those things into every category and made sure there wasn't anything that they thought was important that didn't end up in one of those categories. So even though it was my core values that hopefully would stay with the program for a long period of time, they were all things that we were in agreement with and at any point could be challenged and we have to be open to change if there was a reason to. I just think having a framework that everyone knows you're gonna consistently go back to in order to solve differences, in order to look forward, in order to create a plan is really helpful when you're dealing with so many different personalities. Did you feel like just those key words helped trigger those thoughts? I mean, cause you talked about you taking that, that mission statement and, and making it smaller or making it one sentence. Is that kind of how that flowed with just those key, those key words? Yeah. Um, actually habitude training is really, really great. And it, there's pictures involved. So I, I went through the habitude training by accident. I showed up thinking that, you know, I was going to learn how to just do a little bit better presentations and what his materials were. And I ended up in the facilitator training. So I was equipped to train other people. So I actually trained our, our leaders in how to do it. And they came up with the pictures and kind of the stories that, and the words that would, and taught it to the rest of the team. So it was imagery with, that related to those core values. Um, it was mottos, it was repeating things. It was just using that language in daily moments. So for instance, you know, one of the habitudes that they picked that matched our core values was um, 
like thermostat versus thermometer. And the idea would be that a thermometer takes temperature and adjusts to it. And a thermostat is, you know, adjusts it. And so when you go in and there's not unity in a room or there isn't a lot of accountability or whatever is needed, do you just adjust to it? You know, are you being a thermometer or are you being a thermostat? And so it could be as easy once, and it's much easier for the players to, to buy in. I felt like when it wasn't just coming from me, you know, to, you know, sometimes you don't have to have a full conversation anymore. You can just say, Hey, you know, thermometer, <laughs> thermostat, and it's done and over with. Um, and even the process of them thinking about how they would explain a value to somebody else and then relate it to practice or game, I think in itself, you know, I always say I'd be a much better player now having coached and it's because of how much thinking I've done. And I think the same thing is true when you're teaching values to other people, you, it, it makes you want to live them out more yourself and be more cognizant of them. I love that imagery. I, I mean, I, I've heard the, ha, ha, what did you, Habitude, what is it? Habitudes. Habitudes. Tim, Tim I, I, <laughs> I know I follow him on, on Twitter and um, I was actually in a, in a, um, uh, Zoom thing today with um, Celia Slater and mm -hmm. um, Tip Jones, Dr. Tip Jones, and they were talking about Tim Elmore as part of that presentation as well. And um, but the imagery thing is really cool, and I think because we all have core values or core words, but being able to, t especially with visual learners too, to have that, I, I, I'm going to use that. I really like that. Our head coach, um, James Clarkson, he, he really did something awesome. And it, it surprised me, not because he's not awesome, but we've been spending a lot of time in the offseason going over the dash style of play and you know, him preparing PowerPoints, him reviewing with us, teaching us exactly how he wants us to play so that we could then go on and independently teach other people. And, and you know, we're talking like PowerPoint after PowerPoint, slide after slide after slide. And then he comes in one day with like the player edition and it's just pictures, unrelated, not pictures of, um, you know, football, but imagery of what we're trying to do in every phase of the game. And I thought that was brilliant. Like what's an example, like not, not a tactical shape on the board, but, but like we want to, we want to go and, um, swoop in like an eagle and steal the ball, that kind of imagery? Or what, what do you mean? Uh, Not to steal I, his I'd ideas. Like to, <laughs> I'd, like to be, I'd like to be careful. I don't know yeah, if I'm no, going to come away with something completely off topic. But, yeah, you're on the right track. Like yeah. something that is a metaphor for yep. the specific style that you want to play. Um, gotcha. So maybe if you play like a diamond in midfield, you know, and that's how you – or you always build with a diamond, mm -hmm. then maybe there's a picture of a diamond. And it's just really simple reminder that mm -hmm. there's three things we're trying to do right now. And one of them is getting a diamond shape. I love it. No, that's really good. I mean, I'm sure this is, I mean, we learn every day, just taking these tidbits from everybody. That's, that's fantastic. The imagery thing. Good stuff. Thanks for sharing that. I like that. <laughs> well, I, I would agree with Aaron Twyla. Um, I, I love that as well. And I think that, um, you know, think of it almost like, uh, I guess, how I, how I would describe it would be that the top of the funnel, that there's a, a lot of information, right? And, you know, there's different ways to describe things or whatever. So as we keep narrowing the funnel down, 
how can we get it down to one word, two words, an image? Um, because quite truthfully, I mean, that's probably all our players are going to remember anyway, right? Because um, we're asking them to do, you know, to, to think with their brain, to move with their body, all these things at one time, you know, walking and chewing bubble gum in essence. So, um, you know, if we can, I don't want, I don't know if the word simplify, uh, I don't, I don't know, I don't think that's the right word, but if we can help them understand it in one image or one word, you know, that can be really powerful. Right. And that's a great cue. I think it's a fantastic cue. Uh, to go back to, right? Um, it could be from a culture standpoint. It could be from a style of play standpoint. It could be, I mean, it applies to so many areas of our game. I mean, that's brilliant. So, what is that? Soccer game models using pictures, <laughs> using yeah. images. And, I mean, make no mistake. <laughs> yeah. our, our players will get very detailed football imagery. Yeah, yeah sure. But the, what makes things sticky is, um, is the pitchers, I think. And if you can, if you can be way ahead of the curve and have a pitcher to begin with, everyone's kind of going, what is that? Right. Mm -hmm. And, and then you work on all these things. And at the end, you're like, bam, right back where we started. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, there's, well, there, I know because of Tim Elmore's research and many others that, that we know there's science to the way that our brains work, especially with a generation that has grown up with a phone mm -hmm. and pictures so readily mm -hmm. available. So um, I almost think about it because a lot of our players are, uh, can, are also a little bit older and, and they have a different framework for the way that they think than maybe the generation that was in college that I was working with last. And um, I almost think about it like a leave behind after a interview or something where you're like, Hey, we talked about all of these things and here are the takeaways for you at the end in a really tight, like succinct um, piece of information. So uh, it, we, we always like to ask guests uh, that come on the show, Twyla, about who they support um, is just, you know, put your fan hat on here for a moment. Um, so I, I know you're going to say Houston dash, right? Can't say that. But this shows. <laughs> if, if you took them out of the equation, right? Um, who do you support? Who do you admire uh, in terms of football or, you know, what are you paying attention to? Um, you know, uh, Aaron and I joke. So he's a he's a Liverpool guy. Uh, <clears throat> I'm I'm a Evertonian. Um, you know, that's the the cross I have to carry in life. Um, but yeah, who you know is it? Uh, is it in the college game? Is it um, you know the the U.S. any of the national teams? Uh, um, who do you find yourself kind of uh, you know gravitating to? Um, strictly yeah. as a fan. I always make sure I say this because I think there's so much uh, pressure from our generation on our generation to, you know, who do you follow? And so that my answer is Liverpool. And, but I will preface by saying I didn't grow up watching Liverpool or anything like that. I, I grew up with like six channels. One of them had soccer on sometimes and it was probably La Liga and just not something that I, I did or really had access to a whole lot until I got to college and there was cable there and I, you know, started watching that EPL review show and things like that. And 
And then I went to my first EPL game um, when I was a volunteer assistant at NAU. And that just like opened my eyes. And I thought, you know, wow, this is way different than I thought. There's nothing on the planet like this. What have I been doing with my life? And that's when I really started watching. And Tim at Pepperdine, Tim Ward, who's I've known for I think over 25 years now, which is crazy. He's a Liverpool fan. So we used to watch a lot together and I think I kind of adopted them through him. I hope the glasses probably give a little bit away. How can you not like a coach that hugs people all the time? And, you know, just the way that they're playing right now is, is pretty awesome. And the balancing of different types of players and, and things like that, but mainly Klopp's really openness about his life and his approach with players, I think I just find to be really interesting. I don't remember as many coaches like hugging and being that affectionate with players in the league prior to him coming. And maybe I just started paying more attention. I, I don't know, but I, I know people made fun a lot in the beginning and now it's like uh, so much research has come out about how high fiving and how much it matters and physical contact and eye contact relationships, all those things, it, which exists across all the managers, obviously. But yeah, Liverpool, I joined the supporter club here in Houston and unfortunately haven't been able, I was going to be able to make my first game and then all of uh, this happened. But um, yeah, supporter. Class. I would say just to throw, you know, out, there's so many teams in the NWSL that, that are so worth watching. I don't want to promote anybody besides ourselves, but, you know, a year ago I had no idea I was going to be here with the Houston Dash, and I really, really enjoyed watching Laura Harvey's um, Utah Royals play mm -hmm. and, you know, Vlodko's teams, and I don't want to take anything away from anyone else, especially if anybody's listening out there that I know, but there's so many, the women's game is evolving so much and um, there are so many women's teams that are worthy of watching. You know, one of my favorite games was watching uh, Leon and, and North Carolina play recently. And I think more and more of those games will happen. We went down to Tigris in Mexico. And I think it's a real shame that our country doesn't understand the magnitude of the growth of the women's professional game and market mm. in Mexico right now. I mean, the crowds are unbelievable and it's genuine support. It's they're not just showing up because the women's game is, you know, after a men's game or something like that. It's thousands and thousands and thousands of people coming down from all the streets to get to the stadium. And um, there's so many good women's teams to be watching. So even if you're not like a Houston Dash fan, I think, um, it's time for everybody to adopt, you know, a male team and a female team as the game evolves. And in all of these challenges that, you know, best five players are most influential players that you see on Twitter right now to make sure that half of your picks are female, especially if you work with uh, women in sport. Mm -hmm. I, I completely agree. Um, I, I think the the NWSL is a must follow for, uh, for any football fan, you know, here in the States and, um, the, the quality uh, of play, you know, I think is there. Um, some really exciting individual players too, and players that I think even a casual supporter are going to know and, you know, can support and just cheer on and, and you know, want to see do well. And part of that, I think, is just because of the success of the, um, you know, the World Cup and, uh, uh, you know, the, the impact 
that uh, especially our, our women's national team has had on us as a culture and as a society in a number of ways. Um, yeah, and it's not just the U.S. women's national players. There are so many international players that are just so fun to watch, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in the NWSL right now. So uh, yeah, it, ma- it makes me miss it, um, just thinking about it. And that uh, that was always a, a must-watch. Um, you know, when I was kind of going through the, the list of games that I try to watch on a week, um, they were always part of the equation, uh, you know, for sure. Um, Twyla, if, uh, if people want to follow you and connect with your journey and, uh, you know, follow along with what you're doing, um, go ahead and, and plug uh, social media or where people can find you. Well, I, I just got rid of my Facebook because I'm trying to distance from all of that stuff. So you won't find me on Facebook. <laughs> My, uh, Aaron tags my, me and stuff, and I find out about it like three days later because I'm <laughs> in the same boat. So if there's a Twyla Kaufman uh, Facebook account out there, it's definitely not me. It's an imposter. <laughs> and uh, I have Twitter. It's just my name, uh, at Twyla Kaufman. And my Instagram is private, so you won't. So Twitter is really the only way. And I do check my messages there. And another great way uh, to just kind of see what we're up to every day is just uh, the Houston Dash Twitter account, Houston Dash Instagram account. Um, and I, I like to try and respond to anybody that reaches out to me. I love collaborating and interacting with people like you guys. And the only bummer about doing these type of things is is I'm doing most of the talking and, and answering of questions when I really want to be hearing from you guys. So I always welcome opportunities to both speak and get to listen to other people. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the latest episode of the On the Touchline podcast. And um, guys, I, I hope that uh, you had your, your pen and paper. Um, there were definitely some really good nuggets in there, Twyla. And the um, I, I am going to incorporate the imagery. Um, I'm probably going to trip over myself doing it, you know, I'll have a picture of like a, <laughs> <clears throat> like a Bengal tiger or something, you know, they'll be like, what? I'll be tripping like it. Joe Exotic, you know, come on. <laughs> <laughs> they definitely remember it if it's Joe Exotic. But again, you know, I, I have no connection. There's no kickback or anything like that. But I, I think attending Tim Elmore's courses, if you have a little bit extra fund, funds, you're looking to invest in yourself and this next generation, I, I'm a big, big believer in what they're doing over there. So growing leaders, look into it. Um, I'm sure they'd ha- be happy to have a conversation with anybody. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, uh, thank you so much and uh, welcome back anytime. So, uh, Aaron, you get a, a thousand points and um, a high five and, um, I don't know, maybe an autographed uh, Liverpool kit if you incorporate Joe Exotic into your imagery uh, when, you are, <laughs> uh, when you're coming up with your team imagery uh, for the fall. Uh, because I'm, I'm just telling my guys, if they're listening to this, you can almost 100% guarantee that's going to be in there um, because that's how we want to press people, right? We want to be like tigers. We want to you know, <laughs> be on the front foot. We want to go, go for the kill, go for the prey. Um, so, <laughs> uh, I haven't but, watched any of that exotic, tiger exotic guy. So I'm not, I know I hear all the rumblings of it, but I haven't seen it. 
I'm too busy watching Liverpool versus Arsenal in 1989, those games. Well, I'll tell you that I ventured into Chelsea uh, Arsenal um, from 2003, I think, uh, last night on YouTube. And uh, it was quality. Um, and I, I mean, come on, the uh, the size of the kits and the uniforms uh, back in the day. I mean, holy cow! It's like you're wearing a garbage bag, you know. I mean, <laughs> yeah. early two thousands. I mean, you go from the eighty the the eighty nine Liverpool Arsenal game where the shorts were like speedos, and then you go into the early two thousands where they are they were way oversized. They only had size extra large, even for five foot four five foot six guys (laughs) yeah good stuff uh twilo was pretty fantastic and um the we mentioned the imagery piece but i think for for any coach listening to this uh if you can in four or five six however many words it takes you uh associate what you're trying to say with an image and if you have the environment where you can use that image to convey your point to your players incredibly powerful. Um, I, I would go as far as saying game changer. And given a generation of players that are hyper visual in their learning and connected to some sort of, you know, visualization uh, every single moment of the day, I think you're going to make an impact. I, th- I think you will move the needle in a positive direction um, if you can do that. And I, you know, for my guys listening to this, um, that will be incorporated into our preseason uh, and throughout the fall season for sure. Absolutely. I mean, I think we all have core values. We all have a mission statement um, or definitely we should. Um, but ultimately how the the players can make it worthwhile to them or make it real um, is the most important thing and and that's that hopefully is a game changer for us is is the imagery piece and uh, really happy that she shared that and really excited to start to work on that uh, with our team Mm -hmm. Um, there's something else that she said that I wrote down um, and this was early on in the conversation about uh, you know the the relationship that players have with the game and the the ups and the downs and the ebbs and the flows and that um you know, I, I think more importantly, that the bigger takeaway there is that players should have a relationship with the game. And I think, and I've said this before, this is where they go from I play football or I play soccer to I'm a footballer when you have that relationship with the game. And I think that is an evolution for a player when they get to that emphasis or get to that point where, you know, there's times where they're frustrated with the game. There's times where they're angry at the game. There's times where the game brings them nothing but joy and happiness. Um, that is what having a relationship is some days. Um, and I think it's important for players to, to have that. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 deep, the deep-rooted love um, is, is just like that familial love that you have for your brother, sister, um, that sometimes cousins, whatever, sometimes you, you – you have a disagreement and you get irritated, but you deep, deep down, you love them. And that love is unwavering. And I think that's, that's what happens with, with sport and with soccer and, and that, to find that, that love knowing that sometimes there's good days, some days there's bad, but it's always that, that true passion. Yeah. Well, uh, hopefully sooner than later, uh, Twyla and the, um, the good folks at the Houston dash can resume 
uh, or I should say start the, uh, the NWSL season. And, um, you know, as we all try and, uh, you know, resume hopefully some normalcy um, at some point uh, into late spring, summer, uh, and who knows when any of that will be for, for any of us. But um, yeah, uh, Twyla, I wish you a, a whole lot of success and uh, we'll definitely be paying a, a little bit closer attention to the dash um, for sure, uh, you know, going forward. So good stuff. So guys, you can find this podcast on all major podcasting platforms. And we love that if you listen on Apple Podcasts to please be sure to leave a five-star rating in a review about the show. Of course, we also love when you share uh, nuggets and, and tidbits from the show out on social media. And Aaron, how can they find you uh, in the world of social media? At Ohio Soccer Coach. And you can find me at Soccer Coach JB on Twitter and Instagram for both Aaron and I. And uh, we would love to connect with you. Uh, that if you're new here or you've been following along this journey for a while, um, certainly there's a, a whole lot of room in the tent. So come on in. The, uh, the water is warm. Guys, this has been the latest episode of the On the Touchline podcast. I'm Jason Broadwater. I'm Aaron Rodgers. I don't know, you're waiting for me to say something. I didn't have anything to say. You hit hit it. (laughs) All I could have said was, go Dash. Yeah.